You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, April 20th, yet another crazy day in markets. We've got our managing editor, Ed Harrison, standing by with Ash Bennington, and they're ready to give you their macro analysis of everything that's going on. But before we go to them, let's go over the biggest news in markets today. All right, we're starting off with the biggest story. Oil has plummeted to unprecedented lows. Western Texas Intermediate is now trading at negative $37 a barrel. That's right, negative $37. If you have any empty barrels lying around your house, there are producers and traders who will pay you to take their excess supply off of their hands. This is an unprecedented demand shock that puts all other gluts to shame. The May futures contract is at negative $37, while the June contract for next month, that futures contract is at $21. What a widespread. This market is in extreme contango. I'm sure Ash and Ed have a lot of thoughts on that. In other news, ratings agency Moody's put the CLO market on notice, placing 859 collateralized loan obligations up for review for downgrade on Friday. $22 billion worth of securities could be on the chopping block. This as the CLO market has already received severe credit downgrades. Meanwhile, coronavirus continues to inflict massive destruction on the world and the US in particular. We're seeing a plateauing of daily active cases and thus slowing growth. However, daily active cases are still hovering between 20 and 25,000. 43 states now have more than 1,000 confirmed cases. From this chart, behind New York and New Jersey, we see that states like Massachusetts, California, Michigan, and Illinois stand out as other hotspots. And Florida and Louisiana aren't far behind them. Over three times as many Americans have died from COVID-19 as they did from swine flu. And as it currently stands, about 10% more people have died from COVID-19 as they did from the regular flu in any given year, based on the average amount of deaths from the last 10 years. And in the United States, we can see that the amount of active cases far exceeds that of any other country in the world right now. And lastly, with equity markets continuing to rally over the past two weeks, many shorts have been getting their faces ripped off, but there are some bears who continue to do well. One fund in particular, and MP Securitized Partners, netted nearly 48% last month as its shorting of the commercial mortgage-backed security market paid off and paid off big. They bought CMBX6, an index of credit default swaps with heavy exposure to retail. The position is still doing well as the credit quality of commercial real estate continues to deteriorate with corporate occupants across the country requesting rent abatements. 
landlords are bracing for mass vacancy for months ahead. You've already seen companies like Ross and Williams-Sonoma have stopped paying rents altogether. It is truly a dire situation. MP Securitized Partners originated out of Steve Eisman's Front Point Partners. Yes, that's the Steve Eisman from The Big Short. So it looks like some habits do die hard, but in this case, the trade did pay off. We will keep you appraised. What's going on in commercial real estate is fascinating. We're going to try and wrangle a big hitter for you on our platform here at Real Vision, uh, either on the long or the short side. Uh, but the story of the day continues to be oil and its unprecedented decline with the WTI May contracts sliding below zero, going negative. This is unprecedented. Uh, this, is, this is truly crazy times. And to make sense of it all, we have our managing editor, Ed Harrison and Ash Bennington. Guys. Thanks, Jack. It's Monday, April 20th. I'm Ash Bennington for the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We have Ed Harrison in Washington, D.C. Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks, to Ash. And you may have noticed, by the way, that I'm going with the platoon look. I told you, I warned you I, I, that I was going to imitate you. And, and in fact, I am doing so. It's, it's like boot camp here. <laughs> Literally, you know, <laughs> looking good, looking sharp. In the age of shaggy coronavirus haircuts, we are the clean cut duo. Exactly. And we got a really, uh, joking aside, we've got a really busy day here. Uh, really interesting things happening in the oil market, European sovereign debt. What are you looking at? Yeah, so I think the first thing is uh, oil, obviously, because uh, we saw that uh, we had negative uh, trading. That is, is that the trading was negative numbers for the first time in the history of the contract for WTI. And this is something that actually we've talked a lot about on Real Vision. I think even Raul had a piece where he talked about oil going to 20 maybe even $10 a barrel. Right. Let's take a look at that, actually. Yeah, he turned out to be oddly prescient. Let's take a look. The car companies are going to get absolutely killed in the environment that's coming. Car sales in China were down 90%. I think that's about two months running. And also, just the use of cars collapses over this period. The price of oil, obviously, would collapse over this period. And I think oil probably goes to $20 a barrel, which is something I've talked about for a long time. So we have a very, very, very dangerous setup coming out of the doom loop, out of the retirement system, um, and out of the downgrades of corporate credit. And that's a precarious situation because we have markets like the oil market, which, re which recently tested its $42 head and shoulders pattern. If that goes, then oil goes to $20. If oil goes to $20, all the shale guys are out of business. Their business model has been pump more as the oil price goes down just to cover cash flows. That suddenly gets to bankruptcy very fast, and we'll see the, the junk bond markets explode on the back of that because many of those players are junk already. And there you have it. That's our CEO, uh, Raul Pell, talking about the collapse in demand for oil. Uh, what he's talking about this doom loop that we're seeing actually unfolding right now before us and uh, the potential for U.S. shale producers uh, to be going out of business. These are some really, uh, some really grim tidings we're looking at. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, let me put a little context in this, uh, how I'm looking at this, because I think there are two different ways that you could look at it. There's one which is a fundamental way, and then there's the second, which is technical. Now, I was right. talking to Roger about this earlier in terms of the technical side. This is Roger Hurst, our uh, London bureau chief. That's right, exactly. And what Roger was telling me is that 
a lot of this has to do with people who were uh, taking a spread. They were looking at the contango, which is where the back months are higher than the front months in terms of uh, futures contracts. And they were saying, you know, we're going to go long the front and we're, and we're going to sell the back of the curve and, and make a spread based upon that. The problem with let me just break break in there, Ed, for, for people who don't follow this as closely as you and as Roger, certainly. But so effectively, what we're talking about here are futures contracts. And the critical thing to understand about futures contracts is they imply physical delivery of the commodity. You have a front month, which is what you were just referring to, which is the next month in the contract. Uh, and contango is this situation where you have uh, subsequent months at higher prices than the current month. So when markets are in contango, you've got something that investors call negative roll yield. That's effectively you have to pay to roll into the next month's contract. This makes sense because effectively you're paying someone to store the oil for you. We've got a situation right here. We've got expiry coming up tomorrow. That's Tuesday, May 21st. And it's a very unusual circumstance, something that we've never really seen. And from there, Ed, give us a little bit more nuance yeah, so this front month uh, contract, people were saying, okay, we're going to be long this side and then we're going to be short on the back end and we're going to make some money on that. Uh, but we're not going to take physical delivery. We're just going to, we're actually just going to make the trade. But then, unfortunately, as Harris Kupperman told people here at Real Vision three weeks ago, there's a massive oversupply of oil to the point where you can't find uh, enough storage on land, especially at Cushing, which is where WTI, West Texas Intermediate, trades. And as a result of that, you have to store it in all these tankers and so forth. It's just a, a mess. Right. And the, the result, therefore, is, is no one wants to take physical delivery. And the people who were in this trade suddenly realize over time that, wait a minute, uh, we don't want to take physical delivery. You and I were talking about this, I think, probably a week ago. We were talking about the discount between WTI and Brent being $10 a, a barrel. Someone was saying in the comments, actually, you're looking at the May contract for WTI versus the June contract for Brent. And the reality is, is, is that really it's only maybe $5 difference uh, it's not the 10 that you guys are talking about. But that right there shows you the contango at the front end of the WTI curve, even a, a week ago, was pretty severe. But as we got closer and closer to expiry, it got more and more. And then today, it just went ballistic because no one wanted to take physical delivery. It was to the point where people were paying $37 a barrel to to not take physical delivery. So we ended the day with the front month contra contract that is oil at negative $37. So that's the, that's the technical side of things. That's why it right. happened. And so the question becomes, will this happen again, uh, you know, as we go from June to July expiry in a month's right. time? Uh, we don't really know. Uh, you know, people put this trade on this one time, maybe therefore it won't happen again. But if you look at what the June contract is trading at, it's trading still at $21 a barrel, which is right. pretty hor horrific, uh, irrespective. So uh, what Raul was talking about is spot on in terms of $20 a barrel. Shale oil is in a, a world of hurt. Canadian oil is in a world of hurt. So the fundamentals are very bad. But you also have the, the, the technicals on that as well. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a great explanation of what's happening and all the nuance that's that's baked in there. You know, the the uh, CL1, uh, which is the way that Bloomberg displays the front month on uh, on WTI, their their charts were actually broken. Their one month chart couldn't display the negative information. These are really strange situations. You you mentioned uh, so WTI is generally the U.S. price of oil. It's down in Cushing, Oklahoma. Cushing capacity now is at about seventy one percent of operating capacity, meaning the tankers down there are getting filled up. The international benchmark price of crude is, of course, as you mentioned, Ed, uh, Brent. And there's now a huge spread between Brent crude, uh, which is uh, last trade I see on Bloomberg here is 26 bucks a, a barrel versus minus uh, 29 on WTI. So you've got this, you know, this 50 plus dollar spread. So, someone asked me this morning, um, you know, what does this mean? How can how can oil prices be negative? And I said, well, it's like having an old couch. First, uh, you're selling cheap, then it's free, and then eventually you you pay your mother's cousin to come and pick it up with the truck and dump it on the frat house lawn. That's really, I know it's a silly metaphor, but that's really what you're talking about here. You're basically saying that people are paying to have oil taken off their hands because they don't want to take that physical delivery of the contract. <laughs> And yeah, exactly. And you know, to talk about the Harris Kupperman trade, uh, yeah. you know, he was talking. The Harris Kupperman, he came on three weeks ago, and he was talking about the oversupply. What he right. was saying is, is look, you know, when you look at what happened in, in in China, it's coming here. We're looking at twenty million barrels of oil a day over, let's say, a fifty-day period. He was talking about a billion barrels, and then he was talking about a ramp-up period uh, during which time we would have. Uh, say, 100 days of an oversupply of 10 million uh, barrels a day. So in aggregate, 2 billion barrels of oil oversupplied over that 150-day period. And the, and, the, and the answer for him was, is, is that this is going to cause tanker prices to skyrocket. That's where you want to be looking. You don't want to be looking at the front month versus the back month because right. When you know what happened today was is that all the people who were in this front month trade, uh, they were like, you know, take the oil off my hands. We don't want physical delivery. They started getting yeah. margin calls because the 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 oil price was going down, uh, and, and you know that's just a disaster. Yeah, that's that's so spot on. That the the cuppy the cuppy trade was so great. And if you're a Real Vision subscriber, go check it out. He proved absolutely prescient on it. And the color that you point to at around uh, around the tanker trade is actually really interesting. It's the ability or the desire to effectively buy floating capacity for this oil, since the the physical tor uh, storage facilities are getting uh, are getting filled up. And yeah. I would actually add on a similar note: if you're a Real Vision subscriber, go check out Warren Pies on the platform as well. Warren also had to really. I'm not going to spoil the ending for you, but he also uh, was in line with some of the things that uh, that Cuppy was saying, and then some additional points that he made, which were really interesting. If you're interested in the oil space and you're a Real Vision subscriber, definitely check out Warren Potts. You know that uh, that video of Rao, he talks in the end about shale and high yield. I thought right. it was very interesting, especially in the context of a conversation that we have on a recurring basis about the Fed's backstopping of fallen angels and high yield ETFs. I think right there you're seeing why the Fed's backstop is not going to be all encompassing in the high yield space because a lot of these energy names are going to go to zero. They're going to default. And as a result of that, you're going to see some distress within the junk space. And I think that there's nothing the Fed can do about that. 
Yeah, you know, as we, as we talk about this, what we haven't mentioned yet, it was that today's, uh, today's close. You know, the S&P was down uh, about 1.8%. Uh, the Dow off about uh, just under 2.5%. NASDAQ off just under uh, 1.3%. You look at those numbers, and then you you listen to the conversation you're having, and you kind of wonder, I, I don't know, it's, uh, it's 4.20 p.m. on 4.20. Like, what are these guys smoking? Yeah. yeah. Well, let me let me uh, throw that back at you, because one of your former colleagues, uh, Megan Green, was yeah. writing an article. She was saying, don't bail out the uh, the shale sector. You're just going to create zombie companies. These guys wouldn't go to zero anyway. It, just don't do it. But obviously what people are betting on on some level is my understanding is, is, is that they're thinking they're going to be some bailouts. These companies, they're not going to go to zero because we're not going to let them go to zero. Do you think that that's what's going on here? You know, I, I, I'm not an expert. I don't follow the shell patch that closely. I think there's a lot of moral hazard issue uh, risk in this. But I but I also think that, um, you know, uh, the Fed is going to do what the Fed is going to do to, to keep the economy from outright collapse. You know, to me, the broader issue, it, and, and this plays into the broader context, I think, of what, what you're asking, uh, is this is a global macro issue. This is a demand destruction story, right? And and the the question seems to be not is demand being destroyed. We all know that demand is being destroyed. I mean, here in New York City, it is like a ghost town. I went for a, for a bike ride on uh, Saturday night, and you know you could have cruised down Park Avenue through a series of red lights. Not saying I did, but there was no traffic <laughs> on the street. It was absolutely empty. It there was not the sound of distant cars. There wasn't the smell of city in the air. I mean, it is it is an extraordinary shift that we're seeing here in New York City. What's interesting is when you look at the projections, there, there are two, this is, sounds a little confusing, but there are two different agencies with very similar names. There's the IEA, that's the International Energy Agency. It's a policy group that tracks energy. It's global based out of Paris. And then there's the EIA, that's the Energy Information Administration. That's the U.S. agency that tracks consumption of energy and petroleum products. Last week, uh, the IEA predicted a demand crash in April, uh, a, a collapse of 29 million barrels per day. So 29 million barrels per day, less consumption globally. Um, and, and they predicted a rapid snapback. The same thing when you look at the EIA charts. They go like this. It's a straight line, a V, and then it comes back and it goes straight at a continuing slope that's very gradual. You know, the, these rapid snapbacks, when you, when you see what we're seeing here in New York, uh, when you're physically on the street, you know, I mean, if 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 you get the it's 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 as though there's going to be this all clear whistle that's going to blow and people are going to say, you know, honey, let's uh, let's pack up the car, grab the kids. We're driving a thousand miles to Disney World. It, it's just not going to happen. Uh, and when you when you look at when you look at what's happening uh, in markets, how the risk is being priced, and then you look at the the real destruction of demand, it's it's really hard for me at least to reconcile those two propositions. I, I don't know, Ed, am I being too pessimistic here? Do you see this differently? Well, you know, I don't see it any differently, but I think that a lot of people, they're wondering, how can we think about it uh, from a, a positive perspective or differently? You know, how can we take the other side of that so that we're not always uh, putting forward that view? I think uh, Kevin Muir, he has an interesting point of view. I spoke to him on Real Vision Live. He talks about, you know, the intervention. And, and you know, so I'm, I'm trying to say that the people basically believe that there is going to be enough intervention and it's going to be it's going to be durable enough it's going to be long enough so that the economy catches up 
to the, the the prices and 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 that's the bottom line is is that you may not like how they're doing it that they're bailing uh, these companies out uh, that it's good money after bad uh, they're picking winners and losers however you want to call it but right. ultimately that's what people are betting on they're betting on the fact that not that the economy is going it's going to be a v-shaped recovery be, just because of that's how it works but because right. we're getting massive support uh, both on the fiscal and the monetary side. So I think that that's really what we're talking about here. And it's it's hard to understand at this particular juncture uh, wh- which side of this, uh, you know, which side you want to bet on. What I would point out, however, is that what we saw today shows you the downside of right. how these things can, can go wrong. I mean, we've never seen negative uh, uh, numbers in these uh, these contracts. And yet we went to negative 37 today. I mean, that's just unbelievable. No one has seen anything like this in the history of oil uh, futures trading. So I think that we can we can understand that when bad things happen, they can happen in a hurry. And that's what we saw today. Right. And exactly as you pointed out, it's a technical story, but it's also it's also a fundamental story about global demand. You know, you've been no one watches uh, the macroeconomic aspect of this closer than you do. You've been writing a newsletter for decades now that focuses on precisely these kinds of issues, issues of fundamental solvency, issues of uh, macroeconomic stability. When you think about that Fed uh, policy and when you think about the fiscal policy, the trillions of dollars that are being injected now uh, by the U.S. government into the economy, what's your feeling about it? Do you feel more optimistic than I do seeing this disconnect between the real economy and financial markets? You know, uh, I don't, but I think that then I think about what are the fundamental uh, questions that uh, and and where where can you look for problems. Uh, and I, I look at the difference between the United States or the UK, as an example, and places like the Eurozone. I think you may know that I wrote this right. article at Credit Write Downs. And basically what it boils down to is that you have sovereign debtors, fiat currency issuers like the US and the UK, and then you have currency users, uh, non-sovereign debtors like Italy, Germany, Greece, Spain, etc. And right. so what so what we're seeing right now in the eurozone is that we're seeing countries like Italy in particular who had one crisis that is the great financial crisis a second crisis that is the european sovereign debt crisis followed by a third crisis the coronavirus crisis and Italy uh, which entered these crises with about 100% debt to GDP is going to exit these crises at 160 or 180% debt to GDP now the ECB can do exactly what the Fed has done, and that is is to uh, do quantitative easing. They can do quantitative easing of Germany. They can do it for Spain. They can do it for Italy. But what happens uh, when the crisis is over and Italy is now at 160% debt to GDP? Then you have a big problem because the ECB will not have the, uh, the wartime mentality to be able to say, we're going to break all the rules. Italy won't have the the ability to break all the rules on the fiscal side either. That's, I think, where the the rubber hits the road. So to the degree that you actually believe that the Fed can do all the things that uh, everyone thinks the Fed can do, the ECB can do it too. But when wartime is over, then you have to think, uh, what are the consequences? In the first place, I look is Italy. I think that Italy is going to be a big problem, not necessarily now, but once we move back to uh, a, a non-pandemic situation. 
Yeah, you know, you you explore this, uh, and I I encourage people to go and take a look. You take a look at the political and economic and sort of politico-economic aspects of uh, the Eurobonds debate today and credit write-downs. It's definitely definitely worth a read if it's something that you're interested in. You know, I, I wonder those very same things. There's some projections that say that Italy could exit this crisis with a uh, debt-to-GDP ratio as high as 180 um, percent. You know, these are some these are some really frightening times. I think. I mean, we were talking about these issues uh, back in 2012, and now they're back again. It seems as though whenever there's a crisis, uh, it exacerbates, and and these uh, these things come out. And you know, you're looking at several years in the 2012 case from the financial crisis, and who knows where we're going to be precisely as you suggest, uh, two or three years from today. If you look at the sovereign yields, you know, German uh, German sovereign debt is yielding about minus 45 basis points. Uh, it Italian debt at 193 uh, basis points positive. You're looking at about a you know 140 uh, some odd point spread there. But th- you know th- these are this is a real challenge. Um, Italy has experienced uh, you know a really terrible impact from the coronavirus crisis. I, I believe around 24,000 people in Italy have died, and that's with a country with a population uh, about 20 percent the size of the U.S. It's 60 million people. That's roughly triple the New York metro area. So this is a country that's been hit really hard by this crisis. Um, And, um, you know, this unmasks, and I think some of the points that you were making in in credit write-down, some of the real fundamental challenges inside the Eurozone. You have economies that are growing at different speeds. You have economies that uh, are paying divergent amounts uh, for issuing sovereign debt. And it's really difficult to figure out how this is going to be harmonized under a single interest rate. Yeah, it really is. I mean, not to be a Eurosceptic here, but I mean, let, let's uh, examine how we got to where we are today using Italy. And we can talk about Belgium because they were a similar case before. But, you know, Italy actually had 57 percent debt to GDP in the year uh, 1980. That really? was when, yeah, uh, government debt to GDP was only 57 percent. But it was in 1980 when the when the uh, when the uh, Bank of Italy said, you know, we're not going to st- buy up all the debt anymore. We're not going to so monetize, if you will, so that we can devalue the currency as we have in the past. We're going to draw a hard line. And what that basically meant is, is that interest rates went way up in Italy. And by the time you got to 1994, the debt had gone from 57 percent to 124 percent. So you had a massive, a doubling uh, you know, the Maastricht criteria were uh, at 60 percent. So right. Italy basically has been forced to run primary surpluses uh, for a very long time. And that's right. been crushing to their economy. But at the same time, they're in the euro. And so uh, it's been uncompetitive for them from a uh, from a currency perspective. So they tr- traded a soft currency for a hard currency. And there's no way out for them to be able to export their way out of this in the way that the Germans have been able to do. Because the Germans got into league with the, the Italians, and they have a, a, relatively speaking, softer currency. We know that from the fact that the Swiss currency has been appreciating vis-a-vis the euro because, you know, it's an amalgam of, of a bunch of different countries, the Germans, the Italians, and so forth. So it's a really intractable problem. And the only way to really solve that problem is to go, uh, you know, the full Monty and, and do a fiscal union. But these countries, they don't want to do that. And I don't think that you're ever going to get there. And this problem is going to, is going to continue until we have an exigent crisis with uh, 
with Italy. I believe that that's the country that is the, the one to watch because they're right. large enough that they're existential for, for the European Union. Right. And, and for those who are not uh, uh, tucked away at night uh, reading the uh, Maastricht criteria the way you are, Ed, the, the challenge that you're alluding to here, the, the real, the big picture issue for people who don't follow this closely, is effectively you have a single interest rate set by a single central bank, the ECB, and you don't have a transfer union or a fiscal union, meaning the debts that are incurred by one country are incurred exclusively by that country, and they are not mutualized or shared across the union. Yeah. And, you know, so let's put this in the context of everything that we're talking about today. So what we're talking about today is an oil price crash uh, because of a lack of demand. And then we're saying, why is it that the stock prices don't reflect that? And we're saying it's because uh, central banks and fiscal authorities will step up to the plate. But right. then the question becomes, when they when the crisis is over, what's going to be uh, the outcome? I think that the outcomes in the U.S. and the U.K. are manageable because of fiat currencies, because they're sovereign currency issuers. In places like Italy, it's not going to be manageable. And that's because of the euro. And so this is where you need to look in terms of thinking about you know where there's going to be some sort of break. Uh, if if the market breaks in some capacity uh, after you, it, it levitates, uh, where would it be? That would be one place to look. Right. And that's the narrative through line is central banks and the ability to uh, to do the things that central banks do. You know, it's also interesting when you when you talk people, there's a cultural issue here as well. That's, you know, maybe a little bit softer, a little bit harder to define. But, you know, the reality is people talk about the United States of Europe and they really are, you know, not united in the same way that the U.S. is united. You know, we talk a lot here in the United States about red states and blue states. But the reality is when there's a hurricane in New Orleans, we're all Americans. You know, on the on the those dark days here in New York uh, and September 11th, you know, there were people in Kansas, Utah, Ohio, you know, with American flags and pictures of New York City firefighters and uh, and the World Trade Center. We really are one culture. And um, and and that's something that Europe simply has not experienced. And I, and I don't mean to be too cynical about this because Europe has made tremendous progress in the last 25 years of uniting and trying to harmonize and balance. But the reality is, and this is a really cold thing to say, but it's it's simply the truth, is that when today's European leaders were kids and they were sitting on their granddad's knee or their grandmother's knee, they were hearing stories about these two terrible wars that were fought between the great powers of Europe. This, these are not unified cultures. And there is this cultural risk uh, that lurks beneath the surface. That's something that we simply just don't have in the United States. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, just to think about it from a Brexit perspective, that's really what Brexit was all about. At the end of the day, it was about the fact that, look, you know, we want to get good things out of being European and everyone being together. But, you know, we don't want to go whole hog here right. because we're not the same. There are differences between us. And right. don't try to make us the same. Don't try to impose yourself upon us. And I think a lot of people feel that that's what's that's what's happened. And and it's unfortunate because uh, that bad things are going to result uh, because of the uh, of the of the tension that results because of that.
You know, and it's such an interesting point, Ed, as you as you point to with Brexit. And this was just the EU. This was just the European Union. Uh, the United Kingdom always maintained its its own central bank in the Bank of England, and and so they were always able to, uh, as you point out, uh, implement their own monetary policy. But in in some of the other countries of Europe, in fact, in the entire eurozone, it is this single one sized fits all solution in a place where there are. Look, they are they are latent, they are dormant, but there were these underlying cultural tensions. Certainly, uh, I mean, I feel I feel incredibly cynical pointing this out, but it's something that you really just don't hear enough about. Like, look, these are these are countries with very distinct traditions and and a, a pretty grim uh, history in the 20th century. So think about this from the market perspective. Uh, that is, let's say that you have uh, an industrial uh, economy in the United States, and then you have one in. Uh, in Europe, you have airlines in the United States. You have airlines in Europe. Now, which country is going to have the more robust response to coronavirus, given everything that we've been talking about? That is, given the structure of the eurozone, uh, it, are you being compensated for the risk associated with uh, the downside in Europe because of a discount on a price-earnings ratio basis uh, of uh, euro stocks? versus the S&P 500. I'm not sure that that's the, the case. It may well be that discount is completely at, um, you know, is, is completely aligned with the lack of growth that you should expect in Europe relative to the United States, given the, the strictures that they have in terms of their fiscal and monetary policies. Well, yes, and I think you know it, it, that overlaps two themes that we've been talking about. The first is that markets have an ability to stay irrational uh, and not reflect the underlying impact on the ground. And the second is you just look at the currency. You know, if you look at from around uh, you know let's say uh, let's say April of 2018, two years ago, and you look at where we are today, you're looking at going from about one uh, one and a quarter to uh, one oh eight last print on on, on Euro uh, USD. And uh, so that that is reflected in in the in the in the currency. Yeah. So I'm not sure where it goes from here, but I think that it is uh, you know that divergence is definitely something to watch. What's on your your screen right now? What are you thinking about in the context of this massive blow up in, in oil today? Well, I've just been thinking about all the issues that we've just touched on, and uh, it is it is truly unprecedented, and it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how this shakes out and what aspect of uh, of it is technical, as you pointed to, and what aspect of it is uh, is is fundamental in nature, and 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 to the extent that it's fundamental, uh, to what extent will there be uh, feed throughs into the broader economy? At what point do equity markets, for example, begin to wake up and say? There are significant dislocations here caused by a destruction in demand, and that some of the technical factors, because of this super contango or whatever you you know you want to call it, uh, have an impact because there are people shuffling in and out of contracts. But that's really not the big picture story here. The big picture story here is that coronavirus has massively destroyed demand. Europe, uh, the, the in, in Europe, in the United States. All over the world, consumption of hydrocarbons is massively declining, and you know there have been people who are wondering aloud: Is some of this structural? You know, there are a lot of other headwinds here for use of hydrocarbons, right? There are environmental issues, for example, and uh, and uh, and and supply and export issues. And are we ever going to get back to these rosy numbers that IEA and EIA are projecting that we're going to, you know, reach uh, the Tuesday after we go back to work? I, it's hard to it's really hard to understand how that's going to be the 
case. And I know I'm sounding sort of like Euroskeptical and I'm skeptical about about the the about the US economy. Look, we're 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 all analyzing what we see and trying to project forward in the future. I certainly could be wrong about this. But the question to me isn't whether, you know, any one person could be right or wrong in an absolute sense looking forward. The question for me is when you look at where U.S. equity markets are, when you look at the performance of them, is it really adequately pricing the potential risks that we're seeing in the system? And for me, the answer is probably no. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure in, in what way you can protect yourself in terms, you know, because implied volatility is still relatively high. You know, you can buy out of the money uh, puts and things of that nature. But really still, you know, those are expensive, relatively speaking. It, it's, it's very difficult. It, you know, uh, you, you can up your cash position. It's, it's difficult to get into a bonds because, uh, you know, bonds are, are trading at incredibly low yields. There's not a whole lot of value there to be had in, in any of the markets uh, in the middle of what seems to be a very difficult, deep recession, if not a depression right now. So I think at some point we're going we're, we're going to see the convergence. Uh, that's my view. And it's either up or down. I think that over the longer term, uh, stock prices do reflect the fundamentals in the economy. And I feel like you're leaving us on as grim a note as I've been. <laughs> well, you know, you can take that in a positive or a negative way. That stock prices reflect the fundamentals of the economy. Either the economy betters in the way that you know the V-shaped recovery that people are talking about, or the the stocks um, they they move a, a bit further south. You know, it's going to be one or the other. That's that's how I'm looking at it. I mean, your note of optimism is the capital markets are still functioning. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> That the, you know, the Fed can't uh, have them levitate forever. Eventually, uh, we're going to see uh, them reflect the fundamentals of the economy. So I think that that is uh, the positive note to be thinking about, is, is that the fundamentals do win out over the long term. I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Good to talk to you, Ash. Thanks for joining us, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.